Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It is great to be back in the Word of God again with you. We are moving forward with our study of the book of John. We come to John chapter 2, looking to the first recorded miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John at the wedding of Cana. Bible's open to John chapter 2, and we start with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now, and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Perhaps you heard about the groom where, at the wedding rehearsal, the groom pulled aside the pastor and made him an offer. The groom said to the pastor, Look, I'll give you $100 if you'll change the wedding vows. When you get to me in the part where I'm to promise to love, honor, and obey, I'd appreciate it if you just leave that part out. The man gave the pastor a $100 bill and walked away. And the day of the wedding came. The bride and the groom were in front of the entire church. They reached a part of the ceremony where the vows were exchanged. And when it came time for the groom's vows, the pastor looked at the young man and said, Will you promise to bow down before her? Obey her every command and wish. Serve her breakfast in bed every morning of your life and swear eternally before God and your lovely wife that you will not ever even look at another woman as long as you both shall live. The groom couldn't believe it. He took a deep breath and looked around as everyone was staring straight at him. In a tiny voice, he answered, yes. And after the wedding, the first chance that he had, the groom went and found the pastor and said, what happened? I thought we had a deal. Pastor gave him his $100 back and said to him, Your wife made me a better offer. Or then you have the story of the little boy who was at a relative's wedding. As he was coming down the aisle, he would take two steps, stop, and turn to the people, alternating back and forth side to side. While he was facing the crowd, he would put his hands up like claws and growl. And so it went step, step, growl, step, step, growl, all the way down the aisle. As you can imagine, the crowd was near the point of tears from laughing so hard. By the time this boy reached the front, but the little boy was getting more and more bothered by all this laughing. 
and was in tears himself by the time he reached the front of the church. When asked what he was doing, the child just sniffed and wiped away his tears and said, I was being the ring bear. Well, weddings can be entertaining and the best plans go into them, but things can still go drastically wrong. Maybe you've seen some of those TV shows where they play videos of some of the things that have gone wrong at weddings. Groomsmen fainting, the bride tripping over her dress, or the maid of honor's hair catching on fire from a nearby candle because her hair was so full of hairspray. It's hilarious, unless it's your wedding. In our passage before us, the Word of God once again demonstrates to us just how timeless it is because something had gone significantly wrong at a wedding. But as we move our way through this text, I want you to ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself why it is that this event is even recorded in the Word of God. Ask yourself, why did Christ turn the water into wine? And what is going on in this text between Jesus and Mary? Let's try to answer some of these questions. Verses 1 and 2 begin by telling us, on the third day, There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now before we dig into this text, I want to talk to you about some of the wording used in the Word of God related to this passage. There are three words used in the New Testament to describe what we call miracles. In chapter 2 of Acts, Peter actually used all three words when he testified, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. The words translated into English are miracles, wonders, and signs. The word for miracles is not used in John's gospel at all. The word for wonders is used only once in the gospel of John. In John chapter 4, where John recorded, then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll by no means believe. But the word for signs, it is used by the Apostle John 17 times in this gospel. This is one of those areas where the King James could have done a little better job, because out of the 17 places where the word is used for sign, in 13 places, including verse 11 in our text, King James uses the word miracle when it really should be translated sign. And this is actually not just a small detail. This is important because each of these three words has a little bit of a different flair, a little bit of a different meaning that the writer is trying to convey. The idea behind the word for miracles is the power of God on display. The idea behind the word for wonder is the effect on those who witness this mighty work of God. And the idea behind the word for signs is the significance of this act of God. In other words, it points to the idea of what this sign means. Now, here is why we need to understand this. John only records seven of the miracles of Christ, and all seven miracles are signs, meaning they were done to give evidence to the people of just who it was that was standing before them. This is why we read in verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And so what we have before us is the first of these seven signs recorded by John. And the Apostle John tells us that this was on the third day. There's a pattern here in the opening pages of the Gospel of John. The reference to the day it was always refers back to the event that just took place before in the narrative. We saw this back in chapter 1 with the statements the next day 
in verse 29, the next day in verse 35, and the following day in verse 43. Always referring back to the timing of the events that took place just before this. Once you see this pattern, it's pretty easy. This is referring back to the Lord's interaction with Philip and Nathaniel to walk from where John was baptizing down in the south in Bethany beyond the Jordan to the region of Galilee would have taken about three days. The site of Cana itself, it was probably just a few miles down the road from Nazareth. Remember, this was the hometown of Nathanael. The text tells us in verse 2 that both Jesus and his disciples were there. To me, there's something beautiful about this unknown couple inviting the Lord and his disciples to be present at this wedding. Now, I'm not saying they knew at this point who Jesus was, but I am saying how great it would be if the Lord was invited to every wedding. Marriage was God's idea in the first place. There would be fewer broken marriages if every couple recognized the significance of a wedding in the eyes of God, if each couple sought the Lord's presence in their marriage. But notice with me in verse 1 how John records this statement, that the mother of Jesus was there. The Apostle John never mentions the mother of Jesus by name. He does mention Joseph by name, but never the name Mary. The text suggests the idea that this young couple was close to the family of Jesus. But now we get to the heart of the story. Pick up the text again with me in verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Arranged marriages in that day, the vows were spoken, and then there would be a betrothal stage. When the time came, they would have a great celebration. This feast would usually last about a week, and the feast would be at the home of the bridegroom. And the groom's family was absolutely expected to provide everyone enough food and drink. Running out was not an option. If you ran out of wine, it was considered a disgrace. It brought about deep humiliation. Hospitality was considered to be your duty. If you ran out of wine at your wedding, this is something in these small villages that would have been a complete social disgrace that would have haunted this young couple their entire married lives and would have never been forgotten. The groom actually had the legal responsibility of providing for his guests. It could cost you money if you didn't provide for your guests. Now, before we move any further, let me just make this clear. There's only one word that is used in the New Testament for wine, and this is it. This was not grape juice, but it would have been diluted with water. Did Mary actually ask Jesus to do anything here? No, she didn't. I think she was prodding, but she didn't actually ask. Mary did know something about Jesus that most people did not. The virgin birth wasn't something she was going to forget. The words of the angel Gabriel telling her that Jesus would be called the Son of God, it stayed with her. She knew who he was, but I think she was just looking for help, not for a miracle. Men, verse 4, we better understand correctly, trust me on this. To address his mother as woman, it doesn't come across well in English, but this was respectful. But then look at the second part. What does your concern have to do with me? Again. 
doesn't come across the best here in English, but it was an expression they had that literally read, what to me and to you? What to me and to you? Context drives whether this was an expression that was used as a rebuke or just a gentle request to be left out of it. The last expression of verse 4, my hour has not yet come. This is a constant focus in the life of the Messiah. There was a set time where the Son of God would once again be glorified according to his Father's plan. This would only happen after the resurrection. Mary knew before anyone, even before Joseph, that her son was the Messiah. Think of it from her perspective. For years, decades, Joseph and Mary would have faced shame and ridicule for the conception of Jesus when she was betrothed to Joseph. Many think that by this point in time, Joseph was no longer on the scene, that Joseph had died. Mary had to wonder when her son was going to reveal to the world that the Messiah of Israel had come. The simple little statement from Jesus, my hour has not yet come. It was intended to reveal at least three different things. One, the Messiah would not be glorified until after his death. Glory would not come to the Son just because of the signs he could do. Two, the Messiah would be glorified by the Father, not by man. And third, the Messiah would be glorified according to the timetable of the Father. Nudging him would not change his ministry. And at some level, she got the message. Jesus knew his path, and he was in charge, not Mary. Mary could not know the idolatry that would take place in her name throughout the history of the Catholic Church. But Jesus did. God the Son knew the idolatry that would come. And I think part of what we see in his response is Jesus making it plain as day that there must be no misrepresentation whatsoever of the truth of the gospel of Christ. She was his mother, but in no way must she be allowed any say in his redemptive work. He needed to tenderly but firmly make it known that he was not underneath her authority. I do not think at all that this was meant to be a hostile response by Jesus, but I also do think this text is clear that Jesus wanted to set straight the limits of his relationship with his mother. You see, normally a Jewish mother could put some pressure on her kids, even if they were grown to do what she wanted them to do. But Mary needed to learn this lesson, that this could not be the case with Jesus. In other words, what I'm telling you is that Jesus was making the point that his earthly family relationships were not to be the determining factors in his life. His mother could not try to govern his activity. Powerful lesson here for those entangled with the false church of Rome and a mighty lesson to believers that our first allegiance is not to our earthly families, but it is to Christ and to Christ alone. Jesus was not to be directed by his mother or by his brothers in chapter 7, but by his relationship to the Father in heaven. In this gospel record, we see that the entire life of Jesus was directed toward obeying the Father. The focus is always on the hour, the glorification of Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. We'll see this again and again, that the hour had not yet come. Until finally, in John 17, verse 1, Jesus said in prayer to the Father, Father, the hour has come. 
Jesus was living in obedience to the Father, and his life on earth was all pointing to his destiny on the cross and to his resurrection. Jesus walked a straight line from the moment of his baptism to the triumph of his resurrection. The timing, it couldn't be altered by men. It could not be changed by Pilate. It could not be changed by Herod, Satan, the disciples, or even his family. The life of Jesus was being directed by a determined hour. Mary understood some of this. Look at her response. These are the last recorded words of Mary. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. The meaning intended in the text includes the idea that Mary was not and is not in charge of the ministry of Christ. This had to be a painful lesson for her. But she submitted to Jesus. She trusted him. And as the gospel of John unfolds, Mary fades out of the story only to see her again when Christ was on the cross. And this is something our Catholic friends would do well to remember. The focus of the gospel is not on Mary. The focus is on Jesus the Christ. Pick up our text starting again with verse 6 and follow the dynamic taking place. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Now, as you look at verse 6, again, notice that John was letting the Gentile readers know exactly why the water pots were there. This was one of those moments you use what you have, water pots. It is said that each of these could hold 20 to 30 gallons apiece, six of these. So we're talking about 120 to 150 gallons of wine, meaning thousands of servings of wine. John adds the detail that these pots were made of stone, meaning not made out of bay clay. These were not pottery. These were carved out of stone, meaning they were valuable because according to the Levitical rules, with pots carved out of stone, you did not have to worry about contamination. The water in these stone jars was for the ceremonial cleansing of the wedding guests. The purification included the washing of hands and washing the utensils. The Lord had commanded that these jars be filled with water, meaning that they must not have been full. The servants obeyed, filling them up to the brim. And John reveals there was plenty of witnesses that could testify that these pots only had water in them. Now, think with me of the challenge of faith to the servants at this moment. Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. These servants knew that they had just put water in, but there was no hesitation. They did as they were told. Here's where you need to put this text into the historical context of the day. In the first century, in the pagan temples, turning water into wine, it was said to be done all the time. It wasn't really. It was more of a magic trick, like pretending to pull a rabbit out of a hat. They used special pitchers and hidden chambers to create the illusion of turning water into wine. 
But here, we have the Son of God in plain sight doing what the counterfeits could only pretend to do. The beautiful thing about this, notice, Jesus stood back. He wasn't the one directly touching the pots. The servants did, giving plenty of evidence that this was a genuine work of God. Notice what the master of the feast said to the bridegroom. Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Now let's just talk about this expression, when the guests have well drunk. The wording means intoxicated, getting drunk. I know it upsets some Christians to think of this water as actually turning into wine. But I think there's two basic reasons why this bothers some Christians. First is the influence of psychology in the church because psychology teaches that once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, that you have a disease and you are forever a victim of this disease. I think the other reason is because believers have bought into the idea of abstaining from everything instead of moderation. Honestly, that's legalism. That's trying to earn favor with God by setting the boundaries farther than what God himself sets. What do the scriptures teach? It's the Lord who, year after year, turns water into wine by the natural process. The plant taking in water and minerals from the soil, energy from the sun so that the vines become filled with grapes. All that Jesus did in this case was speed up the process and skip a couple of steps. It demonstrated that he is the creator. Scripture absolutely condemns drunkenness, but it also teaches us in Psalm 104 that it is the Lord that brings forth food from the earth and wine that makes glad the heart of man. A little bit of wine, wine in moderation, is not sin, but legalism is. It's rooted in pride, and Jesus hated it then and he hates it now. But this wine was good wine meaning that if the people had been drinking wine and then Jesus just made grape juice, as a lot of people try to suggest, don't you think they would have noticed the difference? John records, this was good wine. Take a look at verse 11. This verse is so important that you may want to highlight it. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. To answer the question of why this text is in the Word of God, this is one of the reasons. It was to show the change of relationship that had taken place between Mary and Jesus. And because of this reason, given to us right here in verse 11, this event was designed to display the Lord's glory and convince his disciples that he was all that he claimed to be. As we said before, this is described as a sign, not just a miracle. This was designed to point to the reality of who Jesus is. This sign manifested his glory, pointing the way to the understanding that the God of the Old Testament was revealing himself in the person of Jesus, the Christ. Notice this statement, his disciples believed in him. The thought is that of the transfer of trust from oneself to someone else. His early disciples had faith in him, not initial faith at this point, but a deepening of their faith and their understanding of who Jesus was. Verse 12, it's a transition verse, but I want to cover it before we close. Verse 12 reads, After this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples. And they continued there not many days. 
The idea that Mary was a perpetual virgin, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches, did not come about until the second century. But the Gospels, as John mentions here, they speak of the brethren of Jesus in connection with his mother. The obvious connection is that these were the children of Mary and Joseph. Capernaum was north, but the text says Jesus went down because it was downhill towards the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum became his home base in the region of Galilee. But this time, Jesus remained in town only for a few days because Jerusalem and the Passover feast were at hand. I have everything I need for joy. This was the statement from a man by the name of Robert Reed. And no, for the record, I'm not talking about the Robert Reed that was on the Brady Bunch. This was a different man. Now, his statement may not sound all that profound, but when you consider his life, then you truly discover just how amazing it is. His hands are twisted. His feet are useless. He can't bathe himself. He can't feed himself. He can't brush his teeth, comb his hair, or put on his own underwear. Strips of Velcro hold his shirts together. His speech drags on like a worn-out cassette tape. You see, Robert has cerebral palsy. This disease keeps him from driving a car, riding a bike, and going for a walk. But it didn't keep him from graduating from high school. It didn't keep him from graduating from college. Having cerebral palsy didn't keep him from teaching at St. Louis Junior College or from going overseas on five mission trips. And Robert's disease didn't prevent him from becoming a missionary to Portugal. He moved to Lisbon, Portugal, back in 1972, all by himself with no one to help him. Once he got there, he rented a hotel room and began studying Portuguese. He found a restaurant owner who would feed him after the rush hour and a tutor who would teach him the language. Then every day, he would station himself in a park where he would pass out gospel tracts. Within six years, he had led 70 people to the Lord, one of whom became his wife. Her name is Rosa. Robert continued to travel to different churches to speak. Men had to carry him in a wheelchair up under the platforms in the front of some of these churches. They would lay a Bible in his lap. His stiff fingers would force open the pages. Robert could ask for sympathy or pity, but he does just the opposite. He holds his bent hand up in the air and boasts, I have everything I need for joy. His shirts are held together by Velcro but his life is held together by the joy and love of Jesus Christ. I suggest to you these are the actions of a man with faith, faith that God will provide, faith that God will use him and his word. Mary demonstrated this type of faith, faith that the Creator could do a mighty work, a sign to demonstrate his role as the one who could transform not just water, but men and women through simple faith in him. There is a joy and peace that comes through living to serve Jesus Christ. I pray you find it, learning that even in the most difficult situations of life, you can trust the one who came to earth to save us. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. 
Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word 